So we're going to continue our series that we started just a few weeks ago called Create in Me a Pure Heart. And we've been setting up Psalm 51 really for a couple of weeks now, and today we're going to dive into it. Now, if you just need a refresher course and maybe you're not sure of what's going on in the context here, David was a man who lived about a thousand years before Jesus, and he reigned as king over Israel. He was the second king of Israel, and as a young man, he was described as someone who was after God's own heart. He was wildly successful as the king of Israel. He led the nation and helped secure its borders. He also led the nation in in pursuing God. That is until one day when he threw it all away. Some of us know the story of David and Bathsheba. And as the scriptures tell us, one day David, when his armies had gone out the battle, found himself just looking out over his kingdom. And when he was looking out from his king's palace over his kingdom, he noticed a woman named Bathsheba bathing. He didn't know who she was, but sent people to inquire of who she was. The word came back that this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of his military soldiers. And David sent and had her brought to him. And he used her and then sent her away. The word came back uh, not long after that that Bathsheba was pregnant. And so David, instead of repenting of owning that, came up with a plan, essentially, that ended up with him ordering the execution of Uriah. He made it look like an accident, put Uriah at the the hottest part of the battle, but then had the soldiers draw back so that he was left standing by his own. And so not only did David commit this horrible act against the wife of Uriah, against the, I'm trying to get this right, against the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba, but also against the husband of Bathsheba. And so Psalm 51 is a psalm that was written in the wake of that, but it wasn't written until David, in a sense, came to his senses. God sent the Nathan prophet to him. He talked about this man who had stolen a lamb from a poor man and had it killed and served to his friends, even though he had a lot of lambs himself he could have used. And this infuriated David. And David said, such a man should die. And Nathan the prophet pointed his finger at him and said, you are the man. And it's in the wake of that that David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Up to this point, he was suppressing the truth. He was trying to manage his sin, manage his reputation, manage the situation. And in this moment of severe grace and mercy, David comes to his senses and he owns what he did. I have sinned against the Lord. And this is where we get Psalm 51. David was not only a warrior, not only a king, but he was a poet. And he put down on paper beautiful words that have sustained and encouraged saints and sinners throughout the centuries since it has been written. And we're going to look at that today. Paul David Tripp says Psalm 51 is both the saddest and the most joyful of all the Psalms. It's sad because it starts where David found himself, in the muck and mire of his own sin. But it's, it's joyful because it doesn't stay there. It, it imbibes deeply of the grace and mercy of God. He goes on to say, David's story is our story. So Psalm 51 is our psalm as well. Let me just pause for a second. Some of us might read that and go, how is that possible? I've not uh, committed adultery. I've not murdered anyone. Hopefully that's true of, of all of us. But all of us have acted in our own best interest. All of us have at times said to God, we know better than you do. 
We're going to draw the boundaries the way we want them drawn. All of us have sought to build our own kingdom and protect our own reputation, even at the cost of others. So in a very real sense, David's story is our story. So Psalm 51 is our psalm as well. This psalm of moral failure, personal awareness, grief, confession, repentance, commitment, and hope wraps its arms around the experience of each one of us. These are the themes of our lives. He goes on to say, but the dominant theme of Psalm 51 is not sin, but grace. Psalm 51 is about how God meets us in our deepest failure and transforms us by his grace. All the themes of sin and grace, redemption, are compacted into this powerful little psalm. And so my friends, as we open up this passage, uh, this psalm today, and look at the the opening words, we're going to start at the sad part, at the part of bad news, of, of David owning what it was that he did. But as we do so, I want us to remember that our hope is not in naming sin itself, but in the mercy and grace of God. So we're just going to simply take the first line of that psalm and use it as the title for our message today. Have mercy on me, O God. So let's pause for just a moment and ask God to work in our life, to help us understand what's being said here so that we can understand the grace and mercy offered to us in the name of Jesus. So let's pray. Lord, like King David, all of us know what it's like to see something that we want and take it. Knowing that it's not the right thing to do, hoping we can get away with it, hoping that you don't notice, and we may even continue in that delusion for a while. But like David, upon whom you showered your mercy and grace. We stand in need of your mercy and grace this day. For some of us, the word mercy is a religious word. We feel like we ought to know what it means, but we don't have a really good idea of it. For others of us, perhaps we just don't even have any idea of what it would mean to experience mercy and grace. And maybe for some of us, we have tasted of it. We want to know more of it. So wherever we are this day, whether we come in here today believing or really struggling with belief, whether we come in here full of joy or full of doubt, we ask that you would meet us in this psalm this day as you point us to your son Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So Psalm 51 actually has what's called a superscript, a little, uh, a few words setting up the psalm. And so this is what it says. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is the context. This is the story behind the story of Psalm 51. And so Psalm 51 begins with verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
This psalm has 19 verses, and what we're going to do is each week we're going to just add to our study. So I just want to take these first four verses and seek to crack them open to understand exactly what's being said so that you and I can understand all the grace and mercy that flows in the rest of this psalm. So to begin with, I want us to note the knowledge of sin that David now has. In verse 3 he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. The New Living Translation puts it like this, For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. And I love the way the paraphrase, the message puts it. My sins are staring me down. What do you and I do when our sins are staring us down? When there's no denying that we have failed and failed miserably? What do we do with that knowledge? My friends, that is the big question. Because you and I are going to find ourselves sometimes, and maybe even frequently, coming to a knowledge of our sin. And so what we can do is we can either suppress it, or we can express it. There's another psalm that many scholars believe that David wrote also in the wake of this event. And he tells us in Psalm 32 these words. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Here David tells us that when he tried to suppress his sin, it began eating away at him. He could feel it in his bones. He knew at some level that God was not pleased with what he had done. But he suppressed it. But then, by God's grace, he came to himself, as Jesus would later describe uh, in a a story he told, or as the Apostle Paul talked about people coming to their senses that they may escape the snare of the devil. For a while, David suppressed it. He knew what he had done, but he pretended like he didn't know. And now he knows. And he tells us in Psalm 32, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He stopped denying. He stopped suppressing and admitted and expressed it. And so I just want to make this simple and and maybe rather obvious point, but it's something that we need to hear. The knowledge and conviction of sin is actually a good thing. It is actually evidence of God working in us when it begins eating away at us, when we have a desire to want to to do something about it, to be rid of it. That's that's a good thing because David couldn't deny it. Not, Not now that Nathan had come to him and said, you're the man. Not now that his secret was out. Not now that the nation of Israel would know everything that their spiritual leader had just done. The Puritan Thomas Watson once said, where there is no sight of sin, there can be no repentance. That sounds rather obvious, doesn't it? Where there is no sight of sin, when we can't see our sin, when we can't see what we've done, when we're suppressing that, there can be no repentance. We can just be stuck. And so David, by God's severe mercy, now has knowledge of his sin. I also want us to note as we look at this, uh, oh, these opening verses here, let's note the vocabulary of sin. David talks about transgression. 
Many people know this word from a version of the Lord's Prayer where we ask forgiveness of our transgressions. But what does that word mean? It simply means crossing the line. It means stepping over a boundary which God has set. David, he had already begun collecting wives. And here was Bathsheba. And he knew that there was a boundary around her. She was someone else's wife. She was someone else's daughter. He had no right to her. And yet he took her for himself. He crossed a line that should not be crossed. When our kids were younger, we give them instructions. We would give them instructions and tell them certain things you can't do, like you cannot run out into the street to get the ball without stopping and looking both ways. That seems obvious to those of us who are older, but it's something that young people have to learn. And there was a line there that they shouldn't cross, and we would describe this for them as a circle of safety. Your mom and dad give you certain commands, certain rules to obey for your own good, for your own safety. And so David had a circle of safety in which he was to live in. He was to love others. But he crossed that line and began to use and abuse others. There's also another word here. I had the wrong slide up. Here's my slide for transgression, crossing the line. The next word is iniquity. And the word iniquity is probably the least familiar to us, but it means fundamentally something which is crooked or bent, something that is corrupt. When a judge, for example, takes a bribe, he's expressing the corruptness of his own heart. So when David mentions his iniquity, he's talking about not simply the action that he did, which was crooked, but he's talking about the corrupt heart out of which those actions flowed. Cornelius Flanagan, his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, said, A bad strain has gotten into the stock, so that we now sin with the ease and readiness of people born for the task. We sin because we are sinners. We commit iniquity because our hearts are iniquitous. That is, they're corrupt. They're they're crooked. Robert Murray McShane one time said, he's a young man, a Scottish minister, but he had some very mature and wise words when he said, the seeds of every known sin lay dormant in our hearts. There is not a sin. There is not iniquity. It's not a transgression that you and I are not capable of given enough time, the right circumstances, the proper watering that wouldn't just pop up in our lives. David, as a young man, pursued God's heart. We're probably not even envision a day when he would steal another man's wife, have her husband killed in order to cover his sin, but those seeds were laying dormant in his heart, and all it needed was some lust to water it. I remember as a young person myself and following Christ when I first came across this quote, it was eye-opening to me. It it caused me to pause and to think, you know, someone who does something horrible, they, they have fundamentally the same heart that I do. Jesus talked about how everything comes out of our hearts. So the third word that David uses is the word sin. It's probably the one that's most familiar to us. That word actually means missing the mark. It was used in archery to talk about a person who didn't hit the bullseye. We can use it for darts or for target practice. It means missing the mark. But even with that definition, it can almost sound like we're aiming for the target, but we're just a little bit off. But sometimes the target's over here, and we're not even aiming for it. We miss the mark because we're aiming at something else, right? It wasn't that David was trying to love Bathsheba and Uriah. 
He wasn't aiming at that at all. He missed the mark completely because he was serving himself. So here's this word transgression. Here's this word iniquity. Here's this word sin. John Stott, the late Anglican minister, put it like this. He said, like salvation, which is a good word, a word we love, like salvation, sin is a word that belongs to the traditional Christian vocabulary. I am not a sinner, people often say, because they seem to be associating sin with specific and rather sensational misdeeds like murder, adultery, and theft. Everything David did, right? But Stott says sin has a much wider connotation than that. What the Bible means by sin is primarily self-centeredness. To use that word, the definition of sin, missing the mark, we're aiming at what we want. That's the idea behind what happens when we sin. Stott goes on to say, for God's two great commandments are first that we love him with all our being, and secondly that we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Sin, then, he says, is the reversal of this order. It is to put ourselves first, our neighbor next when it suits our convenience, and God somewhere in the background. And that's a really good example of that. But let's also note, real quick, the defiance of sin. David tells us in verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. In this prayer composed to God, he says, Against you, God, have I sinned. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I think most of us want to go, Excuse me, David, what about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about the nation of Israel? Didn't you sin against all of them? I think David would probably say, Yes, I've I've sinned against them. But what he's getting at here, first and foremost, is what he did to Bathsheba, what he did against and to Uriah, was first and foremost an assault on God's authority. It was replacing that command that we should have no other gods but God with David's own command that I will be God and I will do what I want. It is to take human beings created in the image of God and to do with them what we want. So when he says, against you, you only have I sinned, he's not denying that other people got hurt in this. He's acknowledging and he's admitting that he lives first and foremost before God and is accountable to him. R.C. Sproul in his classic work, The Holiness of God, and if you've not read this book, my friends, let me encourage you to get it. It is one of the, probably the top five most influential books in my life. In this book, R.C. Sproul said, the slightest sin is an act of defiance against cosmic authority. It is a revolutionary act, a rebellious act, where we are setting ourselves in opposition to the one to whom we owe everything. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on the Psalms, I think helps get behind what's going on here in verse 4. He said, sin by its very definition is against God since it is only by God's law that sin is defined as sin. A wrong done to our neighbor is an offense against humanity. In the eyes of the state, which measures wrong by its own laws, that wrong may be a crime. Only before God is it a sin. Here's the fourth thing I want us to see from these opening verses from from Psalm 51. The possession of sin. Did you see in these opening verses how David talks about my transgressions, my iniquity, 
my sin. He is finally owning it. He's not making excuses. He's not saying if Bathsheba hadn't been doing what she was doing, I wouldn't have done what I did. He didn't blame his military commander for the death of Uriah. He simply owns it now. No excuses, no justification, no hiding. He owns it. So that in verse 4, he can say that you are justified in your words. When you speak over my life and evaluate it, you are right in what you evaluate. You're blameless in your judgment. To call me to an account is what a holy and just and righteous God should do. So at some point, probably most of us are thinking something along these lines, all this talk about sin and transgression and judgment just sounds so negative. And let me just say, I agree. It is negative. But we can't get to the positive until we deal with the negative. So we got a couple of options. One is, let's just not talk about sin ever. Some churches adopt this strategy. They don't want to offend people, so they don't ever talk about it. And some Christians adopt this strategy too. They, they don't ever want to, to use this kind of vocabulary, a vocabulary that the Bible gives us to use in prayer to God. They don't want to talk about it because it just sounds negative. So they just avoid it. That's one option. The other option is this. Sin is all we're going to talk about. And I know that probably some of you have been in certain churches or around certain groups of Christians where it just seems like they get a delight in condemning people for sin. That's all they talk about. And it's not a good day unless you're put in your place. Unless you can just be groveling before God. And so we're going to talk about sin, and that's all we're going to talk about it. Because you're a sinner, and you need to know that. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not. The, the good news is not that you're a sinner. That's the bad news. That's the context in which the good news of Jesus comes to us. Cornelius Plantinga, who I quoted earlier, once again says this. To concentrate on our rebellion, defection, and folly. To say to the world, I have some bad news, and I have some bad news. Is to forget that the center of the Christian religion is not our sin, but our Savior. The good news of Christianity is the good news of Jesus. That's set against the bad news of our rebellion, of our straying. So here, my friends, let's just dial this in for a moment. It is only when we confess the horror of what we have done that we are in a position to be stunned by God's grace and mercy. It was only when David confessed the horror of what he had done that he was in a position to know, to experience, to be wrapped up in the stunning grace and mercy of God. In fact, that's his only plea. He tells us in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. That word mercy indicates someone stooping to help someone in need of help. That word steadfast love in the Hebrew is actually the word that describes God's commitment to his people. To never let sin have the final word. To be faithful to them, even when they cease to be faithful to him. At those times when they, they rebel, God's determined 
to be steadfast in his love. And abundant mercy, some, sometimes it's translated his tender mercies. Sometimes it's translated compassion. God's heart comes out to us when we are in need of his grace and mercy. So David understands that he, he needs God to wash him. There's no way that David can undo what he did. There's no way that it can be ignored. He says, my sin is ever before me. My sin stares me down all day long. And what he really needs now, what he needs before him, is God's mercy. He needs God's mercy to stare him down, to track him down all the days of his life. Paul David Tripp, in his book, Wider Than Snow, which is actually um, a short uh, I think it's 30, 40 chapters, uh, just brief meditations on this psalm, a, a beautiful collection of meditations. But he says in this book, I come to the Lord with only one appeal, his mercy. I've no other defense. I've no other standing. I've no other hope. I can't escape the reality of my biggest problem, me. So I appeal to the one thing in my life that's sure and will never fail. I appeal to the one thing guaranteed not, that guaranteed not only my acceptance with God, but the hope, sorry, the hope of new beginnings and fresh starts. I appeal on the basis of the greatest gift I have, I ever have or ever will be given. Because of what Jesus did, God looks upon me with mercy. In fact, David, in that psalm I referenced earlier, Psalm 32, I didn't quote the, the next part of it. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here he uses all three of those words, those negative words, to describe what he did and the grace and mercy of God that flowed to him in forgiveness. So, my friends, yes, Let's own our sin. Let's not do what David did and suppress it or pretend like it didn't happen. Let's own it. Here at Mercy Hill Church, we sometimes say things like this. We are learning that we are more broken, messed up, rebellious, and yes, sinful, than we often have the courage to admit. That goes for me and that goes for you. We are learning that we are more broken, messed up, jacked up, sinful, rebellious, iniquitous, transgressionist. I don't even know if that's a word. We're all of that and more, more than we often have the courage to admit. But that's not the end of the story. As we saw earlier in our service, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love not a puny love, not a stingy love, because of the great love with which he loved us has made us alive with Christ. By grace are you saved. Maybe another way of putting it is by grace you stand before him. Dan Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which I feel like I'm plugging books today. This was the best book I read last year, my friends. If you do not have a copy of this, get it. And, and soak in it. This was one of the most encouraging and, and most uh, heartfelt, uh, I don't know, just encouraging books I've read as a Christian. It's, I'm going to probably go back to it every year. 
But in this, Ortland says, the guilt and shame of those in Christ is ever outstripped by his abounding grace. Let me say that again. The guilt and shame of those in Christ is ever, is forever outstripped by his abounding grace. When we feel as if our thoughts, words, and deeds are diminishing God's grace towards us, those sins and failures are in fact causing it to surge forward all the more. If we can speak of grace as always being drawn out in our sin, but is coming to us only in Christ himself, then we are confronted with a vital aspect of who Christ is. When we sin, the very heart of Christ is drawn out to us. My friends, do you believe that? I think if we, if we really believe that, that whenever we messed up, screwed up, whenever we sinned, whenever we hurt someone, whenever we, we sinned against the Lord, we would be quick to repent instead of quick to justify, deny, ignore, hope it will go away. If we really believe that when we messed up, that God looks upon us in Christ and compassion, that, that Christ's heart yearns for us, yearns for us to be freed from the slavery of our sin, longs for us to experience his transforming grace, we would never be the same. We would want to have the gospel preached to us all the time. We'd want to rehearse it every day, every hour, every minute of our lives. Because as Paul said, where sin increased, grace increased or abounded all the more. Someone has said, there is more grace and mercy in Christ than there is sin in you and me. So yes, let's own our sin. But let's own our sin so that we can rejoice in the grace of God. We can experience, we can experience it. It can define us. It can be the air that we breathe. So yes, we are learning that we are more broken, messed up, rebellious, and, and yes, sinful than we often have the courage to admit. And yet at the same time, in Christ, we are more loved, forgiven, pursued, and embraced by our Heavenly Father than we ever dared to dream possible. Those things are true at the very same time. And so what Christ wants is for his word spoken over us to be much more loud and more defining of us than sin could ever be. So do we believe that, my friends? Do you remember that game, Hide and Seek? I remember when our kids were younger, it was one of the funniest things is just watching them run around the house trying to hide from one another and people coming out and, and looking for them. And I asked Miranda if I could share this story. It was so cute when Miranda was younger. She would get the phrase kind of backwards in her mind. She'd run into the room where I am. She'd, she'd say, Dad, don't tell my brothers I'm hiding behind the couch. And so, actually, I actually messed that up. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let me get this right. Back that up. She would run into the room and say, Dad, Tell my brothers I'm not hiding behind the couch. <laughs> That's what she would say. So she'd go hiding behind the couch, and they come in, and where's Miranda? She told me to tell you she's not hiding behind the couch. <laughs> What's the purpose of hide and seek? Grace, have you ever played hide and seek? <laughs> it's a fun game, isn't it? The purpose of hide and seek is to be found. Yes, we want to hide, 
But when someone comes in the room and they're about to find us, we're wondering if they're going to find us. And, and there's a sense in which we don't want them to find us. But yes, that's the point of the game is for them to find us so that they can hide and then we can go search for them. My friends, it's the same with the Lord. The purpose of living before God is not to hide and stay hidden. When we, when we hide from God, he's on a mission to seek and to save that which is lost, that which is hidden. When we're, when we're stuck, when we're at those places where David was when he's denying reality, trying to, to, to fix the situation, we're hiding from God, but when we're hiding, we should be saying, God, here I am. I'm behind the couch. Come find me. I'm over here. I'm stuck. I can't do anything about it. Come and find me. That's what God's heart delights in doing. That's what Christ's heart lives for, is to seek you out so that you're not enslaved, you're not blinded by your sin, but rather you're set free from it. And you're set upon the, the amazing grace and mercy that is lavished upon us in Christ. If, my friends, if we could just live in that, if we could just marinate in that, if we could just stop hiding, stop denying, and to be honest, that what we need is exactly what David needed. Have mercy on me, oh God. And God himself delights in showing mercy to the soul that owns its sin. We sang this a few moments ago. Thy mercy is more than a match for my heart, which wonders to feel its own hardest apart. Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep to the praise of the mercy I found. Great Father of mercies, thy goodness I own, and the covenant love of thy crucified Son. All praise to the Spirit whose whisper divine seals mercy and pardon and righteousness Friends, there's not a better message in the world than the message of God's free grace and mercy available to people like you and me in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what an honest way for King David to begin this psalm of repentance. You had gifted him to love poetry and the wake of his monumental failure he sat down and used his gift of words to write out this prayer. And we get to listen in. Because you, by God's amazing grace, included this psalm in the Bible for us to use in our own life. For us to understand that we need your mercy. We need your, your covenant love. We need your tender compassion and mercy in our life. So Lord, wash us clean by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And Lord, convince every one of us that when we screw up, when we mess up, when we're hiding from you, it's at that very moment that we need to cry out, here I am, Lord, find me, have mercy on me. And what, a, what an amazing God you are, the God of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who through Christ comes to us, whose heart is drawn out to us at that very moment in which we're stuck in our sin. 
What amazing grace. What stunning mercy you have given to people like us. And all we can do is simply receive it and thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. My friends, at this time, we, during non-COVID times of our life, we take up an offering, but that's always done in the context of offering ourselves before the Lord. So we're not uh, collecting offerings during this time. We're just doing that online, so you can give there if you would like. Thank you for doing so. But nevertheless, at this time, we respond to the, the message of grace and mercy of Jesus that we've heard by giving ourselves, rededicating ourselves once again to this God who lavishes it upon us. So let me invite you to stand together and let's sing Just As I Am.
and I'm welcome with open arms. Praise God, just as I am. Praise God, just as I am. Come now to this time where we observe the Lord's table. It's called oftentimes the table of thanksgiving because it's here where we partake of this meal and we return thanks to God for our great salvation. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he had one last meal with his disciples. It was the Passover meal. And he took the bread of Passover and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is given for you. Take and eat. He also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, This cup is a new covenant, my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. And ever since that night, Christians have gathered around this table to remember what Jesus has done for us, to commune with him, to commune with one another, and to look forward to that day when he returns in his glory and welcomes us into that eternal kingdom feast of heaven. So let's come to him in prayer as we get ready to partake. Lord, we lift up our, our lives to you. We lift up our hearts and our very souls to you to give thanks to you in response to your goodness because it is always right and it's always good in all places and at all times to give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, through Jesus Christ our Lord, by whom you made the world and everything in it. Above all that we can give thanks to you for, we give thanks to you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver us from our sins, eternal death, by the obedience of his wonderful, beautiful life, by his suffering on that ruthless cross, and by his glorious resurrection from the dead. So now, Lord, as we come to this table, we ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us and upon these gifts that we may partake of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in a manner worthy of those who by grace are being called into your eternal kingdom and glory. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Take, eat, and drink. Thank you, Lord. Well, let me invite you to stand. We'll have a concluding song, Yet Not I, But Christ Through Me. Not only do we stand before God by his amazing grace, but it empowers us to live before him with honesty and integrity. So as we get ready to head back into the world this week, let's stand together and sing, Yet Not I, But Christ Through Me. to give. He 
is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. There we go. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my side the Savior, He will stay. On in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need his power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus led and suffered for my pardon was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now endeavor is my plea. Oh, the chains are released, I can sing, I am free, yet not I, but through Christ.
questions as you head out this day. I want to say, first of all, thank you for joining us. I hope it was encouraging and challenging as always. Hopefully, hopefully you're rooted more in the gospel of Jesus now than when you came in here this day. For those of you who join us online, we're glad to have your presence with us this way. Looking forward to the day when we can all be back together. We want to send you out now with this blessing from the scriptures spoken over your life. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you both today and throughout your life until the day when Jesus returns in glory. Amen. We'll see you next time.